ladies and gentlemen, you wanted the best. You got the best. You voted for 1974 Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. We let you guys pick the next installment in our ongoing De Palma cast series. And you picked this one. Our ongoing series for 2021 where we talk about Brian De Palma's filmography. Blaisos, how are you, dude? I'm doing great. Our listeners have great taste because they chose Phantom of the Paradise. I'm very excited. Well, well most of them did. I love this right. movie. Most of them did, yes. Most of them did. It's, it, apparently... This, this one very... Uh, by a very small, narrow margin. Well, apparently you told me, because I just recently joined our, our official Twitter. By the way, listeners, that's what's, that's what's up, baby. Uh, if you're on our Twitter, you're going to see me on there tweeting. I can't, I can't believe... You're on the Twitter now. <laughs> You've Dude. told me for years, I'll never uh, go on the Twitter. I don't want to uh, look at it. I want no part of it. And now you're on there tweeting more than I am. <laughs> well, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this this thing called the Titter, the Twitter. And I'm like, well, we've got quite a following on there. We've got a lot of people that want to hear what we have to say on there. And I have not been on there for the over almost, at this point, seven years that the Epic Film Guys podcast has been in existence. And I'm like, I don't want Lois House to fuck everything up over there on his own. I want to be part of it, too. (laughs) I'm just saying, listen. um, But what I was getting to in the first place was it seemed like most people on Twitter really, really wanted us to talk some Costner. They really wanted us to talk some Sean Connery. They wanted us to talk about the Untouchables. Yeah, but we w- decided we weren't going to do that. Well, <laughs> overall, the numbers combined, Phantom of the Paradise won. And I'm very excited because to let our listeners in on a little secret, I ain't never seen this movie before. Oh, my God. First time tonight with the wife. Um, I've seen lots of clips, obviously. I've heard lots of people talk about it. I've heard it admired, loved, appreciated, celebrated. And you admired, loved, appreciated, celebrated this movie, didn't mm, you, Justin? Uh, mm, uh, didn't you, Justin? <laughs> I like Brian De Palma. Oh, no. We're doing a series right now where we're talking about Brian De Palma. Are we going to have to throw hands? <sighs> Well, after that Muppet discussion, only patrons will hear that. So if you're not a patron of the show... Oh my God. Imagine Phantom of the Paradise with Muppets. (laughs) Dude. Well, I connected the two for a very strange reason. Um, Obviously, Paul Williams, who's in this movie, was on The Muppet Show. And he composed the music to The Muppet Movie, including one of my all-time favorite songs, The Rainbow Connection. Sung by a certain frog, not that frog, not the epic film frog. This is epic film frog here, and uh, I just want to let you know that I'm not fucking myself anymore. <laughs> Thank you, epic film frog. That was a much-needed contribution. <laughs> I thought I squashed that motherfucker years ago, but he's back again. <laughs> oh, goodness. But yes, uh, uh, and we mentioned Phantom of the Paradise last month on De Palmcast because we discussed Carrie. That's right. And that film star, Sissy Spacek, was the set dresser for this movie. She was dating production designer Jack Fisk at the time. There's rumor that she auditioned for the Phoenix part in this film, but I don't know if that's been confirmed. I could not find any concrete information in regards to that. I did see that same trivia uh, information posted around the intranet, but uh, I could not find any confirmation. Now, you own the Blu-ray. It is a Shout Factory Blu-ray that they released of the film. I do not own the film. Um, after this discussion, I may or may not pick it up because I feel like this movie should be in a lot of people's film collections uh, for the sheer absurd audacity that it exists. <laughs> um, I, that, that's the one thing that I took away from this immediately on my first viewing. I mean, I've been a De Palma fan since I was a kid, um, but this is not the kind of movie that my dad would have thrown on for me on HBO when I was like 12 years old to check out. And it was not one that played on cable. This is a very special movie in a lot of ways. And 
as we go through this discussion, I think you'll realize why if you've never seen it. Now, Loisos, this is one movie where I will actually preface our discussion to our listeners and say, if you ain't seen it, stop listening. Go watch it first. I think there's certain movies that we need to mention that before we go into a full discussion about because this needs to be seen first because when you hear us talking about it, you're going to think we're fucking ludicrous and we need to go into a goddamn psychiatric hospital. Uh, what exists in this movie is a near miracle in a lot of ways. Boy, Sauce, you've seen this movie, it seems like, a number of times before we've had this discussion tonight. It's only my second time watching it, actually. What? I know. What? I swear to God, there was one time at Alamo Draft House when someone was talking about this movie and you were like, yeah. I know that movie. And you swept in with like cowboy boots and fucking <laughs> leather chaps. And you were like, I know all about this bitch. So maybe I'm wrong, but I had it seemed seen like it. you were an expert. At that point, I had seen it the one time. Yes. Okay. So this film was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song, Score, and Adaptation. And a Golden Globe Award for Best Original Score, Motion Picture. However, the film was a box office failure, totally fucking bombed. No one saw it. No one gave a shit. But now we're talking about it because you picked it. And I'm so happy to say that we're doing that tonight on the Epic Film Guys podcast, Forward to Palmcast. So if you were uninitiated with this movie, you were totally unaware what this movie's all about, Lois Oss, why don't you fill them in? Phantom of the Paradise is about Winslow Leach a fledgling composer searching for his big break into the business with a rock opera adaptation of Faust. And his audition catches the attention of Swan, uh, a Phil Spector-esque music mogul who is looking for acts to play his new club, The Paradise. And taken by the cantata, but desiring a sexier headliner, Swan steals Winslow's work, frames him for a crime, and has him arrested. Um, Winslow promptly escapes and after a freak accident returns to the paradise where he haunts the halls as a masked figure on a quest for vengeance. Spooky. And uh, that's obviously the main element that I admire and appreciate about this flick. Um, You like musicals. That's your thing, man. I love musicals as well, but you're way deeper into the nitty gritty of that world. So that's why I guess I automatically assumed uh, this was your wheelhouse. This movie came before. I could not believe this when I was looking up information about this. When I sat down to watch this for the first time, I could have swore. I was like, oh, man, this movie must have been, you know, a product of De Palma maybe watching Rocky Horror Picture Show before it came out. No, this movie came out before the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So a rock opera. Yeah, way ahead of its time. Uh, I mean, the story is, it's born from influences that are pretty obvious to anyone familiar with, you know, European literature, folklore, most obvious being Phantom of the Opera, of course, but there's also Faust and the picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, But the genesis of kind of the extravagant and madcap nature and tone of the movie um, that you could also attribute to Rocky Horror Picture Show actually came from... Brian De Palma hanging out at the rock clubs in like the late sixties, early seventies. And being, that's right. Yeah. Being on the fringes of that kind of wild psychedelic scene. And we see that conveyed through, you know, the way that the film looks and sounds and feels the way that's edited. It's very um, in your face, electrifying batshit insane in a way that only Brian De Palma could have delivered. Yeah. And I recall him saying that the initial idea hit him it came from music in, a, in, a, in an elevator when he, when he was listening to that and he was like, if you can take something this original and turn it into syrup, then he could do that with a film. Right. Well, the, the, the movie opens with a performance from the juicy fruits. Ooh, I love that fucking name. And, and, <laughs> and the, tra- the trajectory, I guess, for lack of a better term of the juicy fruits is one of my favorite things about the movie. Cause they start out as this fifties doo-wop trio and then they morph into this 60s Beach Boys-esque group called the Beach Bums. And then by the end of the movie, they're this 
proto kiss seventies goth band called the Undeads, right? Or the Undead? Yeah, yeah that's right. They were they were like a, a shock rock band at the end of it. Yeah. So they're essentially just puppets for Swan, who's the kind of he's the Paul Williams character. The stop looking at me, Swan. Uh, so they're kind of going through this nakedly shameless rebranding of whatever's popular in the moment, whenever they're on screen. And you're right. De Palma did get this idea when he stepped into an elevator and a Muzak inspired uh, cover of a day in the life by the Beatles was playing. And De Palma thought like how and why this beautiful work of art, this song could be turned into such processed junk syrup, as he called it. Listen, listen, Brian, it's the same feeling that I get when I'm at the gas station and I fucking hear Motley Crue girls, girls, girls. I'll be at the fucking grocery store. Seriously, dude. (laughs) And I'll hear fucking Brian Adams. That's what the world's coming to. All this great music. Well, y'all listen to wet ass pussy, you know. Hey, you're, that's, you're loving it. That's a classic. That's gonna go down in history as one of the great songs of my, all time. My pussy didn't get wet from that shit, but <laughs> but uh, but the gross injustice and the audacity of that smooth jazz cover of the Beatles uh, inspired the very pointed satire that's in this movie. This is. Um, it kind of rides the line between being an ultra campy satire on the music industry with all the glam and the glitz and the glitter and the extravagance and the excess and, and a withering indictment of the music industry at the same time. Cause well, the- it's, it's, it's so operatic. It's so tongue in cheek. It's pulpy. It's comic booky during the seventies, if you will. And at times it's like a fever dream or an acid trip, but I think not to cut you off too deep there before you go any further, it's definitely a perfect representation of the music industry of the 1970s, from my viewpoint, at least. Yeah, it's it's definitely has a darker edge to it. The movie's about exploitation, um, for all intents and purposes. I mean, we see Swan, as he's forcing Winslow to finish his cantata, Winslow literally loses his identity, he literally loses his voice and his soul to this very soulless vision. And his image as well. And his image, definitely, yeah. definitely. So, I mean, I mean, I mean he wasn't uh, he, well. He wasn't the best looker in the world or anything, but like he lost whatever piece of that that he had left to the world, you know. Right. So, I mean, that scathing criticism played for tragedy, not laughs, and um, that comes across in scenes, you know, depicting drug addiction because you see Swan keeping Winslow fed on a diet of pills. Um, you see the casting couch, so to speak, or the sexual, you know, exploitation of people, especially women, wanting to that break shit into the business. That comfortable as fuck, though. I, I wish I could sleep on that right now. Damn, dude. <laughs> um, so for all its humor, the, the film really is an indictment on this behavior that's still happening. We see it happening in the film industry, the music industry, all the time. Well, we're hearing about it more and more now, and I'll be a little serious for a few minutes, and I'll and I'll, I'll bite my tongue on me being the anti-woke motherfucker that I am, you know, that hashtag fuck cancel culture dude that Blaisos does not want me to be. But in all reality, a lot of situations such as this have been going on in the music industry and in the film industry for, I mean, as long as it's existed, uh, both of them. And I think this is Brian De Palma's uh, subtle way, even though it's a little bit in your face, uh, of kind of showing you the behind the scenes of that. And I, for one, appreciate that. I don't think when the movie came out, people understood that to the extent that it's supposed to be represented in the film, but 100% Lois sauce. I mean, it, it's showing that's what music's all about. That's what it's always been about. I mean, we just saw, and I'm not a fan of her at all whatsoever. And I know you are, and I'll bring this up as an example, Taylor Swift, one of the most iconic huge recording artist of our time right now. And she had her whole music library stolen by a male, her old manager. And now she's re-recording all of her music that she created, that she helped build and write on her own. And she's doing that now on her own to re-release it. So her fans can have it and she can enjoy the profits on her own of her own. So it's, it's, I mean, this is, a representation of something that's been going on for a long time and we're still seeing it today. So it's still socially relevant. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and it also manages to have fun with it too. It's not all serious. There is a very clever meta quality to the movie. Um, Winslow's composition is this rock opera 
about a man who sells his soul to the devil, which is, of course, what the movie itself is all about. Because Winslow, who at this point is the Phantom, sells his soul, so to speak, to Swan, who it's later revealed sold his soul to the devil. So, I mean, it's doubly ironic, too, that this evil record tycoon is played by Paul Williams, who wrote the music for the film. And I don't mean this as disrespect to Paul Williams' music, because it rules. Um, But he's just brilliant at taking Faust which is the composition. Um, it starts life as this beautiful piano ballad when Winslow's singing it at the audition. It's oh, very, God. It's very heartfelt. It's very moving. Holy shit. Oh. And, and then he perverts it uh, into the different and increasingly ill-suited styles each time it's performed by anyone other than Winslow. Brian, in the movie. I, ha- I hate, to, I ha- I hate to, to cut you off, but that song's fucking terrible. Incorrect. It's... Terrible beyond words. No. And, no. and then the, and the terrible lip syncing. It's a hilarious performance with those thick ass Coke bottle glasses. I will I will praise when praise is needed for William Finley in this movie. But in this scene, I laughed out loud. I almost fell off my couch. Terrible. And I hate this fucking song. I think this is the worst song in the entire movie. Well, um, ah. Uh... Oh, we're gonna have we're gonna have problems, aren't we? Yeah, we, I guess we will because I guess there's uh, no I accounting f- for taste. But uh... I, guess, I, I guess not, <laughs> Mister. I love Taylor Swift. Uh, but I, I gave you some credit there. Um, listen, I've I've been very open and authentic about the fact that I'm not a huge fan of music from the '70s. I love the '50s. I love the '60s. I love everything before that, actually, and I love the '80s. Up until like 2005, I'm down, bro. Count me in. Not a big fan of 70s music at all. So a lot of the stuff here. All is, 70s music or just? Uh, the majority of it. I mean, uh, I like some of the cornier stuff from the late 70s, but I'm not a big fan of Zeppelin. Um, a lot of the pop stuff from that era, I'm not a big fan of at all whatsoever. Um, I don't mind a good disco track once in a while here and there. Um, but that's about it. Just being completely transparent here. Um, well, the music in this movie is just, it, it's, it's not made for me personally. I can understand this is the era in which it was made and I can try to appreciate it. But that, that second song, which I know is one of the most important songs of the movie, I think is a train wreck of a song. I think it's fucking terrible. Well, first of all, you're wrong. Second of all, um, I bet you loved it though when it gets repeated several times throughout the duration of the film over and over again. Uh, every single time I put the fucking sound system on mute. No. <laughs> yes. You're killing no, me. You're killing please. me. No. no. I mean, I won't hulk out on it yet. Continue. We'll we'll move along from that. Basically, the reason why I bring it up is because it reminds me of that bit in Dreamgirls the movie dream girls when you get the very soulful and energetic song performed by eddie murphy and then the same song is performed in this very sluggish tempo by some white boy and it just sucks all the personality from the piece and so so clearly de palma has disdain for that sort of thing and he's poking fun at it um in the movie we have to get this out of the way that de palma and company didn't take eno insurance out when they were making the movie they obviously didn't think twice about the fact that they were doing parody songs and songs that sounded like songs that were very popular at the time. Um, nor did they think about the naming of the movie. So they were attacked by Universal Studios for using Phantom in the name. Uh, the comic strip at that time, which was owned by Marvel, The Phantom, which I'm sure we'll talk about that Billy Zane movie eventually. I really fucking want to just tell us, tell Louis sauce. We should talk about it. Um, and, uh, as originally films, the name of Swan's media conglomerate, Swan song enterprises had to be deleted from the film prior to release because of the existence of Led Zeppelin's label Swan song records. So they had to change a bunch of stuff. And you can see it very hastily, Optically like. <laughs> removed when they when they're at the fucking press conference at the airport with that podium and you're like, that's one of the worst optical effects I've ever seen. Now usually my wife doesn't ever notice that kind of thing and she's like, why is that thing wobbling? Why is the bird on the white thing going back and forth? I was like, honey, they removed that. That's because they had to remove that. Yeah, very very noticeable. 
Um, I wonder if De Palma like intentionally made that look terrible as a fuck you to. Listen. Of course he fucking did. <laughs> the auteur that he is, seriously. But yeah, on the Blu-ray, um, it has all of the original footage where they have the actor saying "swan song" before they were obligated to remove all of it and replace it with Death Records, which is the name of the record company in the movie. Well, I like I like it much better. It's a de- it's a dead bird. What's funny is me coming from my you know, early 2000s metalcore, hardcore band background that I'm from, the logo with the dead bird on its back, straight out of that era. But no one would notice any different. It literally looks like when when he goes to the, the, the desk at the record company, the chick's wearing the shirt, minus the rhinestones on it, that's the shirt that everyone was wearing back in the early 2000s when you were trying to be tough, like, yeah, I'm in a metalcore band, I'm in a hardcore <laughs> band, I got a dead bird on my shirt. So I actually really liked that. But before we go any further, Loy Sauce, and get into the characters and the nitty gritty of the movie, we're going to take a quick promo break from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back to get into the deep, dark aspects and the fun aspects of Phantom of the Paradise. Hello, listeners. I want to talk to you for one second real quick about the Golden P Movie Awards referred to lovingly as the Golden Peas. Every year, I take the opportunity to celebrate the year in film, and 2020 is no different. Please head over to twopeasonapod.com slash goldenpeas and find all of the nominees as well as links to a ballot that you can use to vote. Voting is open from January 29th until March 1st, of 2021. We feature all of the main categories that you will find at shows like the Golden Globes and the Oscars, but we poll the film and Twitter and podcast community to get those nominees. And as you know, they are chosen by you. So please cast a ballot, head over. Once again, it's twopeasonapod.com slash golden peas. We love movies and we love celebrating movies and we hope you come to the party this year. The Epic Film Guys podcast is fueled by our sponsor, Evil Tea, by the Evil Tea Company. Steeped in darkness, Evil Tea brings a sharp variety of tea flavors, featuring robust and creative blends for all those tea addicts out there. Use promo code EPICFILMGUYS for 15% off your first order. Please make sure to check out their website at EvilTeaCompany.com to find the right blend for you. Thanks for hanging out with us here on the Epic Film Guys podcast, or should I say, De Palmcast. Uh, mentioning our sponsor, Evil Tea, I just wanted to mention, Loisos, that I just recently received my new blends, Apothecary Collection from Evil Tea, which is their new health kind of like lifestyle blend. I got Sleeping Beast, which is a sleep tea, Unearthly, which is a turmeric tea, and Horror Hymns peppermint throat tea baby if i was still doing my metal band shit seriously i mean i drink peppermint tea every night anyways with cbd in it but i'm now going to be drinking my evil tea horror hymns and adding my cbd to it these are delicious blends they're caffeine free my wife absolutely loves them and she designed the labels for these so hell yeah you should check that out as the promo says Epic Film Guys is your promo code for 15% off. We've seen more and more people using that. So if you're interested in checking out Evil Tea, they're delicious blends here. So there's something for everybody over there. And uh, you should check it out. EvilTeaCompany.com Very good. Now, Justin, I have to ask you, is there a song in the film that you liked more than others? Do you have a favorite? And is it Faust? (laughs) It is not. I'm going to play it. That right song so I'm going to play it right here in the episode just to fuck with you. I'm not going to allow you to do that. <laughs> I'll go in and edit it out. No. Um, but, uh, tasty wins, though. Tasty. Um, no, I mean, honestly, there's there's two songs in this I like. One is going to be obvious for anyone two. who knows me. Two? Okay. Well, um... We might need to meet outdoors somewhere 
we, we might have to have fisticuffs. All I would have to do is trip you, and you'd fall over and cry. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like, I, I appreciate, as I said earlier on, um, I know the songs are so important to the film. Um, it's hard to believe when I look at this movie from an outsider perspective that Brian De Palma actually made a rock opera. I think I think he was truly trying to present to audiences that he could be more than just a documentary filmmaker. He could just be more than this uh, dude making these smaller indie movies. And I think he definitely succeeds at that. It's unfortunate that no one saw it, and that you know a year and a half later when Rocky Horror came out, that movie got more noticed um, and got more represented. But because a lot of those same elements are in this movie as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's crazy to think. I mean, obviously, Phantom of the Opera is here um, as a very strong element, but it's not ripped off. It's more of an homage, if you will, than a direct comparison. It's not like he was trying to remake that movie into a modern, quote-unquote, 1970s rock opera. But he definitely integrated that element in there. And I think... Just, just being straight up about it, my favorite element of this entire movie is William Finley, who plays Winslow Leach, a.k.a. The Phantom. He's this meek songwriter who, kind of like a lot of songwriters now, they don't want their music to be tarnished by the industry. But back in the 70s, it was so much more relevant because back then you could not make music without a record label. You could not be anything without a major label being a part of what you were doing huge tours and that was really how you were going to make money and this movie represents that in a lot of ways he's just a small songwriter gets his foot in the door by this showcase which by the way i love the opening of this movie um we did tend to forget that this movie was opened by a monologue by the legendary, iconic Rod Serling, who's uncredited, but from my hometown, Binghamton, with a straight-up homage to Twilight Zone episodes. How great is that, Wysos? It's fantastic. It uh, it kind of gives you whiplash, because the opening of the movie is this very dark, serious monologue from it, it Serling. May you, yeah, it may lead you to believe it's going to be a completely different kind of movie. And then immediately you're thrust into this high-tempo, high upbeat musical number. Uh, completely throws you for a loop. But yeah, it's a great way to start off the film, for sure. But as far as characters are concerned, I really like the Winslow Leach character a lot. I think he's got the most depth. and Well, he's a tragic character, for sure. And he is is the monster, so to speak, of the film. But he's also the most sympathetic. He's like a Frankenstein or Frankenstein. He has monster, the most rather. to do. He's the most fun to watch. He's the one that you're paying the most attention to. Um, and why the fuck did you not tell me that the legendary Jessica Harper from Suspiria fame I is in this you movie? I assumed you. I knew. mean, I when when I was creating the intro to the show, um, Phoenix, I. I didn't. I didn't know she was. She was that. I. I really had no idea, because I had never seen the film before. So yeah, wow. she's she's radiant as she's amazing. The young ingenue Phoenix. She's got a terrific voice. Uh, she. You totally no, understand. Is that, is that is that really her voice? Yeah, it's really her. Um, she has this very alluring voice. You totally understand why Winslow is so enamored with her, uh, and she has this vulnerability, which is then corrupted when she is seduced by Swan, but. She also gives so much of her performance almost beyond the fourth wall directly to the camera. When she's giving her audition, she's singing her song, she's basically like fucking the audience with her eyes. It's very like seductive in a way. Um, But of course, well, that's that's not to cut you off. That's something that De Palma is so well known for with his female characters. They do that through in and throughout. I mean, almost all of his movies, whenever there's a supposed to be a, a sexy female character they always do that they look directly into the camera so i'm, I'm surprised you noticed that in this movie because this movie as much as there are sexier aspects of it it, I, it didn't come off as a sexual movie to me at all well there are those themes running throughout i mean there's the theme of of sex within the music industry and all of that the film's rated pg which did that surprise you justin <laughs> that it's like relatively tame. There's literal stabbings. There, there's themes there's, in there. Yeah, I mean, I think more PG-rated films should include blood and sex and rock and roll. I think so as well. I mean, 
I don't recall any nudity. No. No flat out nudity, but there are stabbings where you'll see a knife go into a chest and blood squirts out. Um, there's, there, I mean, there's no multiple killings and deaths. Yeah. There's no overuse of foul language or anything. Like honestly, if we look at it from a contemporary standard, take a few steps back, my friend. This movie's actually kind of tame. Um, it's just really fucking absurd and weird. Is there a weirder character than Beef, Justin? <laughs> well, see, I wanted to like Beef a lot. I really did. Um, my issue with He wears Beef... an antler belt, Justin. Dude, holy shit. I can't <laughs> believe that you mentioned it. That belt with the fucking deer antlers on it. I about fell out of my fucking seat. How is that a thing that I never knew about? I need it now. When I saw that, ask the wife. I fell in love with that fucking antler belt. They're real, <laughs> dude, they're fucking real antlers. Like, in the front, on the sides. Holy shit. Okay, I love the wardrobe. The beef character. Obviously a play on a lot of the, the shock rockers of the time. However, um, unfortunately, not a fan of Garrett Graham's performance as he plays a gay character as over-the-top and generic as he possibly can. Um, Were you offended because you're gay, Justin? From someone that has done gay voices for 10 years on this podcast. Okay, so beef is offensive, but the lisp isn't. Listen. (laughs) It's interesting then, because you are the, I'm using your words, the anti-woke motherfucker. And I love beef. And uh, I... I, Well, I eat beef every day. I ate steak earlier. I had hamburger (laughs) for lunch. I love that one point when he's um, performing and the audience is just chanting, <laughs> we love beef, we love I beef. <laughs> well, I, just, I guess I just don't like the performance. Um, I think it's hilarious. How... I think, I, I mean, I love the part where he's in his heels and he does the, uh, like bends over backwards and he can't get up because his heels are too slippery. I just like, I thought, I thought it was funny. He's like, I'm not doing this in drag, baby. Oh yeah. He's very effeminate, very outrageous, flamboyant character, but he resents singing this song that's written for a woman, which I feel like if you're already wearing sequins and makeup, you may as well just. (laughs) So at one point in the movie, he has like a clover thing on his face. Right. And then like later in the movie, at the end of the movie, that clover that's on his face, it changes from scene to scene. It changes to. It, well, it changes to like the universal symbol, the 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 male female symbol or mm-hmm. whatever. I don't know what that's supposed to symbolize. I'm just like, okay, well, he dies, and he has the most monumental death ever. Like you would have thought this guy was Jesus fucking Christ himself, because when he gets electrocuted on the stage, and one of the most amazing sequences ever. But I mean, I think there's lots to appreciate the, about this movie. We, we moved along from the songs, but it seemed like you had more to say about them because you are you are that dude that I know you have a very obscure view on music. You like What's a lot that of different things. What's that supposed to mean? Well, you, well, I think you have a broader view on music, a, a broader appreciation than I do. I mean, I, I like a lot of things, but I think you go even further out than I do, a broader spectrum, if you will. This is me appreciating you, not me talking shit. So if you want me to start talking shit, we can do that if you want. <laughs> I'm trying to be polite here. You you want me to be not woke? Fuck cancel culture and all that? I'll get all wild up right now, boy. Seriously. Boy sauce. Uh-huh. What are the songs that you appreciated in the film? The film that we're discussing? Well, I, I mean, I think Paul Williams is an absolute king of songwriting. I mean, uh, I don't think all the songs in the film are hits necessarily, but there are quite a few that I love. Um, I think my favorite probably is Saved for the End Credits, uh, which is The Hell of It, which I think is a hell of a song. But if we're talking about songs in the film proper, I got to go with the opening song, Goodbye, Eddie, Goodbye. Really kicks the movie off in the most energetic way possible. Um, Another thing that I found really interesting about the movie, especially the second time watching it, the rock songs are obviously very modern or they were modern for their time for their time. Yeah, for sure. Which provides a very sharp contrast to the orchestral score, which especially towards the beginning, when we see the events that lead to Winslow becoming the phantom, you hear a lot of classical piano and strings, 
violin. Uh, in the finale, for example, there's even heavy use of organ, which for me, it all harkens back to the music heard in like universal monster movies or old horror cinema. And it- you know, I have to, I have to kind of commend you for noticing these things because watching it tonight, I didn't notice the music at all aside from the, the actual numbers presented in the film. So, so yeah, if you were to watch the movie again, I would, uh, I would recommend like paying attention to the actual score of the movie because it's striking again, considering the rock and roll, um, how classic the musical score is. Um, but yeah, I think uh, this is really a showcase for Williams uh, and it's a showcase, an acting showcase in addition to a musical showcase because Williams is great in the film uh, playing Swan. He's so slimy. He's so conniving. Um, and yet, somewhat charming i can see why he would be able to convince someone to sell their soul to him um because he just has this the way he says trust me trust me winslow trust me um you you can definitely see how he would be uh seduced by this five foot two <laughs> blonde blonde like, phil specter blonde <laughs> fucking midget um, well, let's move on, Justin, to my personal favorite aspect of the movie, the design and the aesthetic, particularly that of the Phantom of the Paradise himself. Oh, my God. The look of I this character. I will shut up and let you talk, but... Well, first of all, I love, I love the way... You, you mentioned William Findlay's performance as Winslow, but I absolutely love the hard shift he takes and his performance when he becomes the Phantom, completely unblinking. I, you don't see him blink once as the Phantom. Yeah, those, those crazy eyes. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, I love the whole origin of the character. The, the, the fact that he gets his face pressed in a record press. A real one, the fact that by he get, the way. The fact that he gets his face crushed in a record press a real well it was a real pressing plant it was a toy factory that they shot at and um they had put blocks in between the press he just pulled his head out right yeah to like, keep it in time to keep so it from closing from all the way but the press was so <laughs> strong it just completely crushed the blocks they put in place so um yeah finley got his head out just in time to avoid getting his head completely squashed like a grape the way that um the character is shot when he becomes the phantom. Um, the the uh, the part where Swan like enters his office. The door is essentially a giant mirror, and when the mirror the door closes, the phantom is standing there in the mirror. Fantastic! I love the chrome teeth. I love the helmet, the billowing cape. It's just a great look, and it is kind of that perfect bizarre amalgamation of like gothic horror and glam rock come together so perfectly i'm telling you right now being the huge costume aficionado that i am and you know i collect masks and helmets and everything um i could not love this design anymore uh the silver bird helmet with the silver grill the red velvet cape with the silver lining on the inside that tight leather bondage outfit (laughs) finley has the perfect physique to play this bird-like character and obviously we didn't really talk that much about the, the bird aspects of the movie because lots of bird imagery yeah tons of bird imagery throughout um but apparently finley came up with the bird motif on his own on the phantom costume with a collaboration with costume designer rosanna norton and like for me when i look at that that's what's important to the movie that's what you're gonna remember this is before batman and when you look at that silver bird helmet with the black eyeliner around his eyes and you see those dead, but super expressive eyes that roll around in that helmet. Like he's a doll with those silver teeth. There's so much performance in there under that helmet that it's hard to not pay attention to it. And I'll go out on a limb and be honest with you. The movie as a whole doesn't necessarily work for me, but his performance does. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's very I, tough to portray a character that's meant to be scary, fearsome, and also completely sympathetic as well. It's a really well, tough I mean, balance like, to pull. I off. mean, earlier in the movie, you see him escaping from prison. He's like in a cardboard he's box. He's like, yeah. He's like, but but I'm not a volunteer. I'm innocent. And they're like, 
how many of you are innocent when they're requiring them all to get chrome teeth? Motherfucker, if I could go get chrome teeth right now and get these jacked up shit out of my mouth, I'd be like, yeah. And like he just slides out the chute into the back of a truck. <laughs> um, but he, he does take on this phantom like presence. And I love that about him. And I love the imagery. It is now my lifelong goal to find an accurate costume version of this to wear. I need this. I mean, I feel like so many people that love this movie, Brian, much like the fans of Rocky Horror, you know, latch on to Tim Carey's character and what he looks like in the in the film. This, for me, with Winslow, a.k.a. The Phantom, I mean, this is my Phantom. I mean... I want to know more about the helmet. And unfortunately leading up to this episode, dude, I don't know if you know more about it than I do. Maybe you can enlighten me, but I could not find more information about who designed the helmet, who came up with the idea for the silver helmet. I saw nothing about it. I would assume it would be the costume designer. I mean, terrific I know, but dude, there, there, the there's no information that, that, that helmet in terms of a costume is just so memorable and so cool. And the way that they had Finley put the black makeup around his eyes and the black lipstick on, I mean, and, and like the pale white makeup on his face, it's almost like a Tim Burton thing that happened way before Tim Burton was a thing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's, it, it happened time. by happenstance. It's, it's, it didn't, it wasn't meant to happen in the way that it did. And that's why I think I understand why so many people appreciate it. Now the imagery in the movie I mean, uh, at one point in the film, you know, we're standing there watching the Phantom with his cape draped around him, looking through a skylight in sadness, deep sadness in the rain. Before he tries to kill himself. With deep blood red pouring out of his chest, and it's like, how how can I not love this? Well, I I knew that you would take to at least those gothic the visuals. Horror. yeah the the visuals there i mean definitely there's a sense of um cl- like throwback to classic horror at one point um during the fa- the staging of faust at the opening of the paradise there's like these german expressionism inspired sets kind of like the cabinet of dr caligari-esque set design and um th- that kind of almost clashes with the 70s glam rock but it fits and it's so perfect in a way that I can't really describe how it just is a melding of these two seemingly disparate things that I think really only Brian De Palma could have accomplished. And I guess you could make the argument that Rocky horror blends those elements together. Very well, well, you would too. know better than I, you would know better than I, cause you are the aficionado when it comes to that, our good old boy sauce dressed in full drag <laughs> for an Alamo draft house screening of the Multiple Rocky Horror years Picture Show. Row, yeah. yeah. And I was never there for any of them. You can yell at me for me not being there. I was never invited personally by anyone at Alamo, at Alamo or by Loisos. You just so come. Just, uh, you don't have to be invited. No, it's a party. No, 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 no. That's the thing. I Listen, think Rocky Horror is so much fun with an audience. I think Phantom of the Paradise would be so much fun. Dude, imagine that. An and, and, and that's the one takeaway with this that I was telling Danielle earlier because she's not a Rocky horror fan either. But when I was trying to equate the two next to each other, I was like, is it possible Lois sauce? And I'm going to ask you this question while we're recording this right now. I'd love for our audience, for our listeners to kind of chime in on this. Is it possible for Rocky horror to exist without Phantom of the paradise? Because this movie seems so close in terms of kin to what that is and what that was trying to be and what made that so popular for fans and the people that gather around the world, you know, once or twice a year to do those Rocky horror screenings that are so popular. Like, is it possible that that would not have happened without this movie? Well, I wish I could say that Rocky horror was inspired by this movie, but I don't think that's the case because the Rocky horror picture show is actually based on a stage show the Rocky Horror Show, uh, that came out in 1973. So pretty much exactly the same time that Phantom of the Paradise came out. So, uh, so you're telling me, so you're telling me a year ago when we were supposed to meet Brian De Palma, what we should have been doing is going up to the front of the line and being like, yo, motherfucker, 
Did you rip off Rocky Horror Picture Show? No, I don't think so. I don't, I think it's well, just the question remains though. I mean, I'd love for people to chime in and and give their opinion on this because for me these these two are so close. It'd be like if there was another Grease right next to Grease. I mean, this was the beginning of you know those big musical movies that everyone loves so much. I mean, this came first, then Rocky Horror, then Grease, which I know you love so, 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 so much. Fuck you. If you really want to, maybe. <laughs> uh, I might I might get divorced, but ugh, yeah. But um, Hi, Danielle. She's in the other room. She's going to beat me after this recording. But no, for real, I mean, like this is the beginning of those big musical movies and of the 70s at least then they died in the 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 80s which is kind of sad but um yeah aren't you a fan of xanadu i ain't never seen that shit you've never seen xanadu oh my god i i just seen the thong you need to sean connery wears that's zardoz oh xanadu is the one with olivia newton john and roller skating I know nothing of this. Oh my is god! Is there good music in it and good '80s related stuff? Um, it's more disco, but um, it's very terrible. And I, I feel I like it's how, one of those movies Brian, that we need to drink and watch together. I loved how gay you just said that. What? It's more disco. Disco. I hate disco. Really? You can't be partially gay then if you don't love disco. Guess I have to get my gay bisexual card revoked obviously the film is extremely visual and you wouldn't be able to talk about this movie without talking about brian de palma's visual filmmaking techniques the split screen something that he was trying to develop in his documentary pieces prior to this um they're on showcase here again that's yeah it's definitely a trademark um pre-carry here that's right and uh he makes effective use of the split screen again, more of a uh, direct reference to a film called touch of evil, which I know a yes. film guy, Nick is a big fan of um, the uh, opening scene, the or, um, in Orson well, the explosion, touch of, yes. touch of evil yeah. where you know that there's a bomb inside the car and you're just waiting for it the to time go bomb off. in the car trunk. Yeah. Is a, a totally an homage to Orson Welles's famous opening for touch of evil, um, which had I not watched Touch of Evil a few years ago for the first time, I would not have noticed. But, um, And I think that every single time I've heard De Palma talk about this movie, he mentions Orson Welles, which is weird. I think it's because he worked with Orson Welles that one time when Orson Welles was like 500 pounds and so, and so drunk he couldn't <laughs> get off the fucking park bench in New York City and couldn't remember his lines. And he's like, uh, I don't know what to do with Orson Welles. Imagine that, like looking up to your your idol, your entire life, and then you're like, I get to direct him, and he's like, Oh, you're like, Oh my god, this is Orson Welles. Is this the same guy that made Citizen? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another filmmaker that De Palma loves to to rip off. I mean, reference. Um, oh no there's no such thing listen that's one thing i will not stand for on this series Lois. i'm and, teasing i'm just well, teasing. you can tease and a lot of people have called him the hitchcock ripoff artist but he's one of the only filmmakers even still to this day that yes ripped off hitchcock but said like no one else is paying attention to this why are they not paying attention to this? We talked about this in our Carrie episode, and we'll continue this when we do Dress to Kill and Blow Out and Body Double and all the ones that I really want to talk about. No, for real. I mean, like, you, you, you have even, like, an homage to the shower scene here in this movie. Yeah, um, definitely. Definitely a psycho reference. Um, beef is in the shower. And um, actually, before this, uh, Winslow falls asleep. And uh, Swan gets his henchmen to wall in Winslow with like a wall of bricks. How is he able to escape that? It just shows. I asked Danielle that because I looked away for a minute to text you. And she's like, oh, he just made his way out through the wall. And I was like, oh, well, he is the phantom after all. I suppose. (laughs) I mean, he's called the phantom. So you're supposed to be led to believe like. Yeah, well, you never know. 
I mean, the room he's in, you never really see, like, there could be, like, a trap door or something. I don't know. He, he, obviously, he smashed his way in. You see, like, the aftermath of this, like, the bricks, like, completely smashed, but you don't, you don't ever see it happen. You don't know what he smashed the bricks with. Whatever. It doesn't matter. But um, directly after that, he confronts Beef in the shower and muzzles him with what, Justin? A plunger. <laughs> I wish that it had like poop on it or something, but that it's still dirty though. It's a very dirty thing to see a plunger and he puts it on his mouth and he's just like, no, you're not going to do this show anymore. This is for Phoenix. I love how he has a knife because he cuts the curtain. Yeah, he, with cuts, it. he cuts, he cuts, yeah, he cuts the, the shower curtain with it. But instead but of threatening him with a knife, he threatens him with a plunger, a plunger <laughs> to his mouth, um, which goes to show that De Palma does have a good sense of humor. A lot of critics, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s, and we'll get to this when we talk about his other movies for sure, is that they thought that he was anti-woman, um, that he was a misogynist, that he, you know, was a hateful person in, in the way that he represented murder. But in this movie, it clearly shows he's like, nope. And this is a gay character, too. And at a time when regardless if he's an over the top version of a gay character, not portrayed by a gay person, he's not brutally slaughtered in the way that you would think he could be. Um, no, I mean, that's one of the scenes that it's very lighthearted goes in with the camp value that Lois House mentioned earlier, that tongue in cheek value. Definitely. I want to ask you because, uh, Steve had remarked about the pacing of the film, what you thought about the pacing, especially at the beginning and ending. Cause it's pretty, for my money, it's pretty breakneck um, the way that it starts out. And especially the way that it finishes uh, the film is edited by frequent De Palma collaborator, Paul Hirsch. And I think the story itself moves along at this very breezy clip with very little in the way of diversions other than the musical numbers. But what do you think of the pacing of the movie, Justin? Too slow. Really? Yeah. It's 90 minutes. I think, I, and I realized that as I sat down to watch it before we discussed this on the show. But, I mean, for me at least, um, I don't know. There's not enough story there for me. There's not enough for me to care about the characters. Um, you have a couple of characters that are extremely intriguing. Phoenix, played by Jessica Harper. You could have done a lot more with her, a backstory. We know nothing about her other than the fact that she's an up-and-coming singer who loves to sing. She'll do anything to make her way into the music business. That's it. Um, That's all you need. I think, I, I mean, I always think of that section towards the beginning when Winslow is found outside of Death Records by the cops. We cut to a completely black courtroom set with this comically large American flag backdrop, the judge bangs his gavel and says, Oh God, I love that. life. And then Winslow turns around practically like to the camera and says like, but I'm innocent. Tell me that doesn't remind you of a Chappelle show skit. Definitely. Seriously, definitely. Though. And then we immediately cut to an establishing shot of the sing sing where he's jailed. So, I mean, it's almost ridiculously oversimplified, but it's like an efficient way to tell a story. You can cut all the fat, but still get the information that you need across. There's montage sequences like that throughout the film, uh, particularly one in which Winslow's writing Faust. I think there's creative methods to show the passage of time, like there's the animated musical notes dancing across the frame. There's the well, I love that. That's of one of my stacking. favorite. There's a I'm so melting. glad that you brought that up, and I don't mean to cut you off, but like visually, in terms of like what I wanted to expect from De Palma, I love that so much. So I'm so glad you brought it up. Like for me, I was in a trance while I was watching that, while I was watching the Phantom writing music as the Phantom. And and, and you're seeing him kind of like pour his heart out while he's thinking of Phoenix, while the music is flowing on screen. And it's just deep black background with the characters popping up almost in a near silhouette. And, um, like that for me, like I was like, this is De Palma. Yeah. This is the most De Palma thing about the entire thing. Other than like someone getting stabbed and the, the bright red blood coming out or whatever. When you look at the crowds 
in the majestic theater when you look at the crowds brian how impressive is that the extras they were able to gather in there that they that just pulled off the street packed yeah full i mean there's like over a thousand people in there cheering and screaming and yelling for this these fake bands these fake musicians and then out on the street as they're carrying beef along in that casket when he dies or any of these external scenes that are just like on the street, it's insane to believe that they were able to get that many extras. You know, damn well right now in today's world, maybe even three or four years ago, that all be CG. But they actually gathered all those people off the street and were like, hey, well, I don't know what they, you know, I, what do they encourage them with? Like, you'll be in a movie? Yeah, sure. At the time, like, Brian De Palma wasn't even a known household name. So... That, to me, is the most impressive thing about it. Like, those crowds, while those musical numbers are going on, it feels like you're actually at the concert. You're, you're there feeling and experiencing the music. And even though I don't like the music the way that you do, I still feel it when they portray it on screen. And I think that's where the film succeeds. There's very few parts in the film that fail for me. And I think that's more in terms of the story and the character aspects outside of the Phantom. But when it comes to the musical numbers and the presentation and the visual nature of the film, he has it in spades, man. If only those crowds showed up to actually see the movie when it came out, because this was not a critical success. It was not a box office success. In fact, it pretty much ate shit everywhere except Canada and played it (laughs) seriously. (laughs) Canadians love this movie, man. It played in Winnipeg for four months straight. Yeah, every oh, year, shit. every year in Winnipeg, it, it, there's a festival well, well, called Phantom Palooza. Dude, it's the movie hit huge in France. Yeah, so that makes total sense that it was a huge hit there. Yeah, so not quite at the heights of cult appreciation that the Rocky Horror Picture Show has reached, but it's found a similar dedicated fan base. Um, and of course, like several. De Palma films that divided critics upon release. It's received a sort of reappraisal that has inspired a lot of artists. Um, Director Edgar Wright is a vocal fan of the film, having cast Paul Williams in a supporting role in Baby Driver. There's also a shot, a brilliant shot of the Phantom running down the hallway when he's trying to stop the sniper that Wright emulated for the cloaked figures in Hot Fuzz. And of course, have to mention, even though I'm very still very raw about this emotionally i'm sad daft let's not seriously (laughs) i'm so sad because i'm a huge electronic music fan everyone that knows me knows that i am you know that i am you know that i travel all over the country to go to electronic music festivals and shows and stuff and i've never seen daft punk and they recently just like three days ago as of this recording disbanded that means if there's another Tron movie, motherfuckers, we ain't getting them doing the soundtrack. Um, but they are the pioneers. And if not two of the most important people in the modern electronic music world. And they based their whole, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Loy Sauce. I know you know the story. They based their whole friendship and their whole band from the beginning entire look. off this movie. Mm-hmm. Off this movie, right? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big influence, like I said, on countless artists, and Daft Punk is one of the big ones. Um, They said they would get together and watch this movie. Twenty movies, twenty or twenty times they watched this movie. I mean, its its impact is there. It may not be as well known as De Palma's other films, or even something like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But for me, Phantom of the Paradise, it's a horror film. It's a revenge fable. It's a tragic love story. It's a rock and roll musical. It's a masterpiece. There's simply nothing like it. Oh, well, you just used the word masterpiece. I love it. Oh, shit. I love it. All right. So, well, we're going to have to decipher here how many of De Palma's movies we're going to call masterpieces, because I know the next three, I'm probably going to call that. So, Well, I'm certainly not every single one, because there are a couple of films in his filmography that I would certainly not call masterpieces. <laughs> but I'm glad you feel this way. I mean... This is one of my I favorites knew, by him. I, I I definitely knew this was your wheelhouse. I mean, that's what I said to you earlier when we were texting prior to our discussion. This is something that for our listeners, a little behind the scenes, uh, 
We don't ever talk about the movie before we review it. This has been an ongoing thing in the Epic Film Guys podcast for, I mean, basically since it started. We never spoil it for ourselves. We always go into each review completely fresh. Maybe with a slight idea on what the other person is going to think, but we never spoil it via text or email or anything. Like we want to go into it and and, and not really know where the other person is going to come from. But with this movie, I knew Loisas loved it. I just knew it because I know him so well. And every element of the movie that I felt would make him happy or smile, it made me feel the same way, which made it difficult when I didn't necessarily love the movie because I do not love this movie. Um, You'll learn like to love it. Well, I will try to, but I feel like it's one of De Palma's weakest movies. I feel like in terms of uh, the visual nature of what he was trying to present, it sucks we didn't get to meet him last year like we were supposed to. Yeah, it really, really does. I I, I, I think about it often. Literally a year ago, um, upon the release of this episode, we should have been meeting him, uh, at least shaking his hand and and, and, and gaining his, his new book in our hands, but... Going into this movie, I admire it more than I like it. I mean, in terms of entertainment value, um, I'm just not a huge fan of 70s music, and I love what he did with this. I think this is probably one of the biggest productions that he ever put together up until, you know, the mid-90s when someone was like, hey, you want to direct Tom Cruise in a Mission Impossible movie? Think about it, logically, um, in terms of production how many extras they had to direct. And I mean, he was an up and coming filmmaker at the time. It's so impressive to think of the amount of work that he had to do in this movie with choreography, the musical numbers, they were all so different and, and, and how ambitious he was. I mean, the one scene that comes to mind and I'm sure you'll be able to describe it better than me. Maybe you'll be able to, you know, pick up off the mic from me right quick. But, um, when Swan's sitting there at the middle of the table and they go around to every single different genre. I love that set, by the way. It's just like a black void and his desk is like this gigantic record and he's sitting in the center of it. It's such a, again, a visionary way to, in any other movie, he would just be sitting at a boring desk. But the fact that he's... It spins around like a record. Yeah, it's brilliant. Again, conveying information through visuals. Again, that's why I have to admire this movie so, so much. I assume all of y'all wanted us to talk about this movie. It was strange to me. And I wanted your opinion on this. When we put up the poll for, you know, we love to do this. Like, what is the next movie you guys want us to talk about in this series? Y'all fucking voted this. One of those votes was me. You bastard. You <laughs> cheated. You voted for a film that I'm sure we'll be talking about very soon. So... I just did that because I was trying to be fair, but I mean, it's a democracy. Okay. And I have to say to our audience that's listening, thank you. Seriously. Thank you. We love you. We love all of our patrons. We love all of you people out there and the rest of the world that just listen casually. They've stuck with us the entire time. We know who you are. We see who you are. And we appreciate you more than words can explain. Right, you are, Justin. Take it from here before I cry. You can find us on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Epic Film Guys. You can also find us wherever podcasts are listenable. Podbean, Spotify, etc. I didn't know listenable is a word. Listenable is a word? Sure it is. Well, you're smarter than me. I know I am. Please be sure to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really, really does help us out. And feel free to become a patron. You'll get insider access, exclusive stuff, drunken ramblings. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, we will see you at the movies. Phoenix. Beautiful. Life's a game with a bound to beat you And time's a trick that can turn to cheat you And we only waste it anywhere That's the hell of it 
Good for nothing, bad in bed Nobody liked you and you're better off dead Goodbye, goodbye We've all come to say goodbye, 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 goodbye. Born defeated, died in vain Super destructive, you were hooked on pain Though your music lingers on Well, all of us are glad you're gone 